Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers, for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, we have three central thrusts to our writing manifesto. First, to help you write more. Two, or second, to help you write better. And three, to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. Today is, uh, it's another author chat episode. It's me chatting to the author Alexandra Rowland. Basically, we talk about loads of stuff. (laughs) Um, Alexandra's got uh, three books that we kind of go into in detail, uh, all fantasy, which, as you know, is my jam. Um, A Conspiracy of Truths, A Choir of Lies and Finding Fairies, The Last of Which is kind of like a guidebook to um, finding a different, it's kind of like a a field guide stroke bestiary about finding different monsters in uh, uh, urban environments and a world affected by climate change and all those kind of things. So I really, and then the first two books are kind of about storytelling and stories and uh, how they affect us and law and political intrigue. So we had loads to talk about and uh, Alexandra talked really just like has got loads of um, great insight and reflections and take on craft and we talked about NaNoWriMo as well which was particularly useful for me because like the main reason I first wanted to make this show more than the first season which was just me reading people's first pages and having opinions about them um was that I'm just super aware that my knowledge is limited right and my experiences are limited and I would I I think I'd just be doing you a disservice if you know with the best will in the world if every episode was only my perspective on writing and what was really really useful about this episode was having someone on who feels very differently about NaNoWriMo and has got a lot out of it and has been doing it for years and um I ended up getting a little bit of a little bit of coaching which is you know let's let's be honest cards on the table this is what I'm desperately asking for from every guest really like all of my <laughs> chats with people on the show and indeed the show itself is um a kind of tragic cry for help uh and the desire to be um uh counseled and looked after and somehow accepted so that was really really nice um and it was just really fun talking about some areas that I love you know I love talking about genre fiction I love talking about stories and what they are and why they are I love talking about monsters and um creatures and the fantastic and what they mean and so it's great to have someone who has a degree in kind of mythology and has studied it and I love talking about why we write and so you know this chat that we had ended up covering loads of stuff you know topics that are new and that we haven't discussed on the show before um and yet I feel is like 
comes back to our core values, right? Like there's actually a classic in the sense that it's about stories, it's a bit about genre, and it's a bit about how you can write and be happy as you do that. So um, super, super on brand. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, there's not much more to say except links to the books in the show notes today's episode if you want to go and check them out i super recommend that you do um also if you want to support the show i do of course have a ko-fi page or coffee page why would i say ko-fi i guess ko-fi anan i did room security for ko-fi anan actually at the un social summit in 2000 that's a little factoid you didn't know about me i was uh there in geneva doing room security it sounds like it sounds made up or maybe it doesn't maybe it just sounds it was good it was it was interesting it was no it wasn't all interesting actually I fell asleep in one of the seminars um on family structure in Ontario but that's because it was in French and I didn't understand it but um I tell you what I didn't fall asleep for didn't fall asleep for Desiree doing an acoustic set <laughs> at the end of Kofi Annan's speech that was yeah and she did and yes she did do, do life I don't want to see a ghost rather that's the sight that I fear most rather have a piece of toast watch the evening news life oh life oh life oh life do 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 well yeah there you go. That's creativity for you. The words of Desiree. Okay, so um, enough about Desiree. If you want to um, support the show, you may after that sidebar um, not want to. But if you do want to help me keep the lights on, then um, you can go to my coffee page, ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Draw me a few beans to uh, help cover the costs. That's it. I've rambled too much. I hope you enjoy this chat. Fortunately, uh, my interviewee is um, is is a professional and um, uh, has a has, is is a seasoned podcaster, and so it did also mean that um, um, Alexandra is is much more articulate and uh, uh, orally fluent than me. So um, you can you'll be able to enjoy that level of professionalism and uh, coherency uh, throughout the upcoming interview. Um, I sincerely hope you enjoy it. The first thing I wanted to ask is what's one of the first stories that you can remember telling? Oh, first stories that I can remember telling. That's interesting because I was expecting you to say like, what's one of the first stories you remember reading as a child? And I was like, oh, I already have an answer for this. Great. That's okay. All right. Hmm. The I'll, Well, I'll, t I'll tell you this. The first story that I can remember writing rather than telling is that uh, one of my aunt and uncles gave me a cute little diary for either Christmas or my birthday or something. Um, and I started writing a story in it and I wasn't really doing it on purpose it just sort of like happened 
Um, and it was a story about this princess and her handmaiden. And I was like six years old at the time, mind you. Um, <laughs> so this princess and her handmaiden, and they go to a dress fitting, and then the princess answers some fan mail, and then she has to like go to the royal court and like hear petitions from the peasantry. And I don't know how little baby Alex at like six years old had ideas about the running of a government, but that's kind of what it was. Um, and even to this day, like, I'm really fascinated with, like, stories about political intrigue or, or like, how people in power can ethically take care of the people beneath them. Um, and so, it, like, looking back on that now, it's kind of interesting to, to think, like, oh, even, even way back then, like, I was already kind of forming opinions about the, the tropes and the, the kinds of stories that I liked. Do you, do you have any idea where that, where that came from? Because that's like quite an interesting slant to have people coming with sort of, you know, their, their, the sense of, you know, because a lot of people when a lot of children are, you know, they're interested in the fantasy of being yeah. royalty for, yeah. yeah, for, for like the glamour of it, right? And immediately right. your story has an awareness of there are people relying up on you who have there are there are people who have problems yeah yeah i don't really know where i got that from no um like the stories that i was reading or that were being read to me at the time um like my my favorite books back then were uh the chronicles of narnia which are which do have the royalty fantasy thing to them but they don't have much at all about like well, I, guess, I mean, they sort of have a little bit about, like, taking care of people, but in a very kind of, like, paternalistic um, British paternalism thing, yeah, it's colonialism and, and there's problems there. Um, but, like, that specifically, like, okay, there's this relationship between the princess and, and her handmaiden, right? So already there's, like, a power differential there and I remember thinking like how important it was that the princess treat her handmaiden very nicely and be and be kind to her instead of like being cruel and and taking advantage of her or whatever um and and then of course like answering letters and and hearing petitions like that's that's literally just running a government right where did I six years old get that from I have no idea um I know that my dad was always my dad was a very very empathetic person like he was very interested in people and how people worked and I get a lot of that from him um and he was also extremely interested in history and so uh, so I remember that he would give me like long, boring history lectures from from time to time. But I don't think that he was doing that as early as six years old. So, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not quite sure where all of that came from. You, the way you talk about it, um, you, you 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 talked about it almost like it kind of you weren't you know you weren't even trying. It kind of poured out of you almost. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, like, I'm, I'm wondering, I just wondered if you could reflect on how, as you've got older, your relationship to kind of creativity 
has changed. I'm not meaning, sorry if this is like it. I realise like I'm trying to bait, it sounds like I'm trying to bait you into saying something negative and I don't mean no, that. No, no, not like, at all. That, no, it didn't, it didn't sound that like that at all. I, I understand the question that you're trying to ask. Um, so I think that I've always kind of like been a storyteller of in some sense. I remember too, like, I, I'm not sure like when, at what point in my child this happened or I'm not sure at what point in my childhood this happened, but I also remember like just going around in my day to day and like silently narrating in my head what I was doing. And I used to envision like, oh, what if my life was a book and like everything I'm doing is being narrated by like someone who's reading the book aloud to another person. And so I used to like imagine that as I was doing things. I don't know why, who knows why children do weird things. But I guess that like consciousness and that awareness has always kind of like been there for me. And and like I said, like I wrote this story without meaning to. And when I say meaning to, I mean like I didn't have the consciousness for a long time that books were a thing that people wrote. Like like a kid isn't aware that you can be an author when you grow up, right? Like they're they're not aware that there's a real person who made this book. Um and and stories kind of just like fall out in in one piece when when you're a child like you just sort of experience a fairy tale or a movie or or a book and and it is a complete finished product right right in front of you there's no sense of a process um and so the the fact that i just sort of like stumbled onto this and it was almost like a compulsion that it was just something that was happening to me and like flowing out of me was an interesting experience. Um, once I started uh, school, I was homeschooled all through, all the way through high school, I was homeschooled. Um, in roughly like third grade, I would have been about nine years old. I decided that I really hated writing essays and I didn't want to do them. And I would sit there just in front of the computer, just refusing to do my schoolwork for hours, sometimes days on end. Um, and the greatest gift that my father ever gave me in terms of what would then become my writing career was that he got fed up with this and he said, okay, well, you're just going to write an essay every single day. And once you can do a whole essay in less than 15 minutes, you can stop doing them anymore. I want you to be able to just sit down, write your essay and be done with it. And it took me probably like a month or two to be able to do that. But now I still have that ability. I can just sit down and start writing. And it's, and so, so that's, that's what I mean by the greatest gift that he ever gave me, because it gave me this ability to just like tap into this kind of like ADHD hyper-focus that I have um, and, and take advantage of that. Uh, I decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was 11 years old. So I decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was about 11 years old. And that was like the first time that I was like, I'm going to write a book. And so I sat down and I wrote another book, um, or at least part of the book. This book also was about princesses. <laughs> um, and then I kept kind of doing it and I kept like picking a project up and, and writing it for a while and then dropping it and picking up another project and writing it for a while and dropping it. Um, and then in 2004, I was 14 uh, and a friend of mine introduced me to National Novel Writing Month. And that's really kind of where a lot of my writer, um, 
that's where I, where I met a lot of the people who would become writer friends of mine and where I first started getting to talk about craft to other people and develop an idea that there were like different kinds of, of ways to do things uh, and accessing a community. And we're, and we're talking at the at the at the end, I mean, what a time to bring up uh, uh, NaNoWriMo because we're yeah. just at the end of another one. And yes, so yes. I would would you mind reflecting a little bit on it? Because full disclosure, like I have, um, I think with my tongue slightly in my cheek, have have kind of um, have kind of grumped about uh, NaNoWriMo in, in, in the past and, and sort of said, uh, oh, 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 you know, people put themselves under terrible pressure. And I, I kind of talked about it as if like people who haven't written, you know, don't write all year and then say, I'm going to do NaNoWriMo this year. It's coming and we're going to re-kickstart my relationship with writing. Mm. And it's a bit like you're in a relationship that isn't working out very well. So you're not talking to each other. And so yeah. you decide to book yourself on a package holiday that's going to last a month where you're going to be living with each other every day for the entire month. And it's like, ju- just like try and that's going to make it worse. You're going to make it. And, and I, I see people burn out, but you have obviously had some really positive experiences for it. Yeah. So um, I'd yeah. love to hear your positive because, because it takes all different strategies and we all work differently when we write. And so I, I would yeah. love you to be able to, this is why I love having people on the show because I desperately don't want people to think that my opinion is the be all and end all. So what's <laughs> your experience of NaNoWriMo been? Because it's clearly been something that you've got community out of it. You've got motivation. You've been able to try mm-hmm. different things. How has it been for you? Yeah. So at this point I have done NaNoWriMo every single year since 2004. That's over wow. half my life. That's over half my life. I'm 31 years old. 31 years old now. I started when I was 14. Uh, So obviously, like, it's something that's very passionate and close to my heart. Um, I think that there's a lot of reasons that people do NaNoWriMo, for one thing. Um, And, like, when you were talking about like wondering like why why would you do this if you if you don't write all year and then you come back to NaNoWriMo and you want to like re-kickstart it well there's lots of reasons for people to do NaNoWriMo there's lots of reasons for people to write and not everyone is writing with the intention of going to publication um or at least not going to professional publication uh there's people who use NaNoWriMo to write fan fiction there's people who use NaNoWriMo just as a kind of like a fun creative vacation where they can decide like I don't have the time or the opportunity in most of my life to make space for being creative and so this is the month of the year that I'm going to to make that space and like commit to to giving myself the time to be creative and I think that's great that doesn't necessarily that they're going to end up with something that is publishable but they might not be aiming to make something that's publishable and that's okay um, like there's, there's lots and lots of different reasons and they're, they're all valid. Uh, I think that if you are intending to become a professional author, it could potentially behoove you to approach writing as if it is a job. But again, like we live in the middle of horrible capitalism and <laughs> like there's, there's other limitations as much as it would be wonderful for everybody to be able to absolutely commit to writing every single day. Um, they have day jobs, they have families, they have relationships, they have all these other things going on. Um, and so NaNoWriMo is, it, it gives that sense of community, it gives that, that space to be creative, and also it gives you permission to just write without worrying about 
what the end product looks like. It's just about words. It's just about putting words on the page and they don't have to be good or coherent. Uh, and that has been kind of NaNoWriMo's philosophy as long as I've been doing it. Um, exuberant imperfection used to be the, the sort of catchphrase of NaNoWriMo. Um, and I think that that's something that is incredibly valuable for many writers as well, um, especially people who are struggling with their inner editors, um, which is like that little voice in the back of your head that sort of slinks in while you're in the middle of writing and says like, you know, this isn't actually very good. You're not, you're not very good at this. You should just stop. You should just throw it out. Um, and sometimes that voice is telling you that because you're not writing something that you love or because you're writing something that you think you should be writing instead of the thing that you're passionate about. Or maybe there is something that is flawed on a technical level, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should throw it out. It just means possibly be aware or like ask some questions about what you're doing and see if there's a way to to fix it. Alternatively, sometimes it really just is imposter syndrome and it's something that you have to sort of give yourself a big hug and say like, hey, it's okay. Like you're allowed to do this. You're allowed to be creative and then just sort of set that cruel little voice in the back of your head aside. Um, NaNoWriMo is a great uh, playground and a great training ground for all of, all of those things. Um, for me specifically, like besides uh, community and um, and everything, like it uh, it fit in very well with that thing that I told you about that my dad made me do, like just sitting down and doing an essay every day until I could do it in 15 minutes. That was basically preparing me to be really good at NaNoWriMo um, because the other thing that he would make me do is to record my time on a spreadsheet. I would get to like color in a bar of a bar graph every day, uh, which also means that NaNoWriMo works really well for me because I get to enter my daily word count into a spreadsheet and like see the bar graph go up. Uh, and so like, it's just on a fundamental level, it's something that really, really works for me. Can you, this is, I mean, this it is so, so useful because it's so different to how I work, mm. but I'm not, I'm absolutely, <laughs> I'm aware that a lot of the ways that I work just don't work for me even. So I'm always really desperate to hear how other people work because I'm mm -hmm. looking, always looking for ways to be less perfectionist, which is something mm. that I think I, sort of struggle with this idea that and I think it's you know maybe it's my background in 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 poetry but I'm sort of so finickety on the line you know the mm. idea of just I must write deathless prose <laughs> I just never get off the never get off the first page because I just yeah. want it to be I just want just want to be I just want it to just be I just I just, perfect. I just, just want, want to, to have perfect. my shop front ready perfect. I get it. I and, get it. I do. And, and, it, and it sucks because you're not qualified to write that first page until you've written the first draft, right? And then you right. know, oh, I know how it should start. So I, w I just wonder if you could reflect on this sort of anti-perfectionism that you seem to have like really, you know, gr you know, got to grips with and tackled head on. And you were talking about, you were talking about sometimes you're not writing something that you're passionate about or you know you're writing the wrong thing and sometimes it's just imposter syndrome and I just wonder how, if you could talk how you've navigated 
I mean, this is almost the serenity prayer, isn't it? Mm. How you've no- navigated gaining the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so something you said in there, you've got a couple different questions in there, and I'll try to tackle all of them. Uh, but something you said about not being qualified to write the first page until you've written the first draft, I completely, absolutely agree. Um, there have been several books that I've written. I'm thinking specifically of my second, actually, both of the books, both of my two fantasy books that I have out right now, um, A Conspiracy of Truths and A Choir of Lies, with both of those books in the middle of the draft, I had moments where I consciously sat back and I was like, I'm trying to do something really big and complicated and literary here. I don't know if I am a good enough writer yet to pull this off. But you become a good enough writer at the moment that you do it. Like you're not at, you're not good enough to do it until the moment in which you have completed it and done it. Does that make sense? Is that like coherent? Um, makes makes sense to me and it um, yeah. rings true of my own experience right. as well. Because because like like it's it's the process of doing it that qualifies you to do it. Um, and but the great thing is is that writing doesn't happen in a linear fashion. So you can always like once once you have finished the draft, you can go back and you can fix the things because now you are qualified and now you can kind of see the whole picture of what you have intended to do. Um, in terms of like like you mentioned having trouble getting off the first page. And it sounds just like from what you're telling me, and I'm kind of like, I don't mean to be like counseling you, but also like, this is no, I love it. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, it sounds a lot like your focus uh, is on language, right? Because like you mentioned that you, you came from poetry and you mentioned that you're having trouble with like the line to line thing and that you, you just want the, the language and the prose to be perfect, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So... I think that probably what I would suggest is to figure out what is dragging you forwards. Like what is what is motivating you? What is the thing that is compelling you forward towards this story? Um, and try to keep the focus on on that instead, because prose is something that you can you can fiddle with at a later date. Um, if if we talk about it in terms of making a, making a cabinet. Writing the first draft is not making the first draft of the cabinet. Writing the first draft is coming up with, writing the first draft is inventing planks of wood, right? You're just coming up with like a stack of raw materials and some screws and <laughs> uh, like a can of paint. Uh, and then when you go back and you do revisions, then you take those raw materials and then you make it into a cabinet. And then you can like fix the the language and and everything um, but at the end of the day, like a book isn't made out of language. A book is made out of characters and plot and theme. So if one of those three things is compelling you and dragging you forwards, then I think that keeping the focus on that rather than on the language might be helpful to get you past that first, that first page. It could also be an issue of momentum. Um, where like you're having such trouble getting started, but like it could be that like once you kind of find the voice of the book and, and get into it a little bit uh, and kind of get the ball rolling, it might get easier over time. You might just be one of those people who has a, a 
hard time starting and your strength might be in the middle and the end. But that's that's hard to know if you, you know, can't get past the, the beginning. But I know people for whom for whom that is the case. Do you when you're when you're writing, how do mm. you how, how do you how do you know? How can you take us through the kind of maybe maybe with your maybe with your first uh fantasy book um mm. I, I i wonder if you could just take us through i don't know if it's always the same for you the the process from kind of like genesis of I, an idea to this this might be an hey this idea i've just had might be an actual mm-hmm. idea to <laughs> i'm i'm writing something down on the page to oh my goodness i think this might be a yeah. i might be actually ta- setting off on a project so, so Conspiracy of Truths is actually a really funny one to talk about that with because Conspiracy of Truths happened completely by accident. Conspiracy was never supposed to be anything. It was supposed to be... Okay, so here's the story. I was in my very last semester of college. I'd just gotten out of a really, really terrible relationship. Uh, and it was finals week. I was an English major. And so I didn't have any tests to do during finals week. I had... I just had essays to write and I had already finished all of my essays. So of I had, course, because you've been you've been practicing your whole life for this moment. <laughs> right. Um, and so like I had kind of a week with nothing really to do where I was still in my dorm room. We hadn't moved out yet. And I was like, I just got out of this terrible, terrible life situation. I want to do something that's just fun. That's just for myself. I am going to sit down and I'm going to do a lot of world building because I love world building. Um, oh, it's the best, isn't it? It's the oh, best. It's so much fun. It's so great. Lore is my favorite thing. I just, oh, I could just, yes. I could just swim in a like Scrooge McDuck in a sea of, yes. of just lore. Yes, absolutely. Uh, me too. So I, I sat down and I taped six pieces of paper together into like one big sheet and I drew a map. And I was like, this is going to be the map of my fantasy world. Uh, And now I'm going to sit down and I'm just like going to come up with stuff to put in it just for fun. This is not for anything. There's no deadlines. There's no pressure on this. This is just pure fun. It's just play. Uh, And so I I started like just coming up with stuff, just just coming up with stuff. And um, I had written a little bit of a fantasy novel uh, for one of my... Uh, classes that semester, my senior capstone project. And I was like, okay, I can incorporate some of the stuff that uh, I used there. I can put that in my map too. Um, and uh, over over the next few months, um, like I graduated, I, I got a job at a hotel at working at the front desk, which meant that I had lots and lots of time to just stand there and stare off into thin air uh, and think about stuff. And I was like thinking about the this world building thing. And I was like, I wonder if it would be possible just as an experiment, just purely as a science experiment, whether it would be possible to write a book with the maximum possible amount of world building, but crucially without overburdening the reader. Like you don't want to like just pour world building on them without like, and like like leaving them with a headache and leading, leaving them like they've just read a history book, like not that. Uh, I wonder if it would be possible to do that. So I started just playing around. Again, emphasizing to myself that it was just an experiment. It was just for science. It wasn't for anything. It wasn't going to be a project. Um, It was going to be like a fun way to procrastinate from the other book that I was writing at the time. Um, And 
so I, I started thinking about this and uh, I came up with this idea for a frame story and there was going to be um, like a storyteller because like if there's tons and tons of lore in the world then you need someone to be able to transmit the lore uh, and it started out as like a travelogue like someone was going to the main character was going to be like traveling around from place to place and um, witnessing things and telling stories um, but that didn't really have a plot to it so then I needed to find a plot for it and I was like okay well Scheherazade um, you know she's she's trapped uh, she has to tell stories to save her life great um, change a couple things, painted a different shade of blue, we're good. Um, and at some point, I just got so invested in this. And I was like, okay, I think I'm just gonna, I think I'm just gonna write the, the rest of this book. Like it was just supposed to be an experiment. I'm still having fun with it. Um, but this is still kind of going to be my procrastination project. Um, so I finished it. I started, let's see, my last semester of college was in like, April, May of uh, 2012. Uh, and then I finished the first draft of this book in September of 2016. Uh, so it took me a couple years, but I was working on some other things at the time and traveling and so forth. Um, and then I was like, uh, then I had, I had just finished editing the other book that I had simultaneously been working on that whole time as well. And I started trying to query agents with the other book. And long story that I don't want to get into now, but I, in the process of querying, querying agents for that book, I accidentally sold the book that I had just finished writing. Uh, and then that book was going to be a real published book. And I was like, wow, this, all of this happened accidentally. Cool. Um, hmm. So that's that's kind of where that came from because it was it was only ever supposed to be for fun. So interesting. You're not the first person who I've spoken to yeah. who wrote a book going, here's the book I should be writing. And then they just kind of go, ah, and here's a book I'm going to do just for me. Mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. and, and it, I'm going to be completely self-indulgent but that's fine because it's not a real book right I'm going right. to do stuff that is either that I want to that would be my idea of if I could just sort of choose the the book myself and you yeah. know like it's going to be all chocolate sprinkles um, See, and conspiracy of truths wasn't even my most self-indulgent book my most self-indulgent book is the one that I have coming out uh in 2022 a taste of golden iron um, because that's the book where I sat down and I was like, okay, I want to write another really fun book. I'm just going to write about all my favorite tropes. It's just going to be chocolate sprinkles. This is just going to be chocolate cake. Uh, and if I don't ever sell this book, that's okay because I'm going to have fun writing this book. Uh, and so like that is the, the book of my heart. Like Conspiracy of Truths, I loved writing that book. I had a great time. Um, there is tons and tons of stuff that I'm passionate about in that book, but it wasn't the book that was from day one designed to be my perfect book so but i think that i think that that's so important to to learn as a writer because like when you can start writing things that bring you so much joy um it makes the whole process so much easier because it makes it fun to turn up and do the work on it and also it means that if you don't ever end up selling the book then you've kind of already gotten paid just in the joyful experience of getting to write it. I guess there's, I guess it, like if we wanted to do sort of safely pensionable jobs, 
for 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 that that we didn't enjoy for money then there are there are a range of options out there so if we're going (laughs) to choose to do this and kind of be on our own in essentially spend a good deal of our lives in a room the size of a service elevator on our on our own we might as well try and have some fun while we're doing it can you just wonder if uh, this might be uh, it might be a silly question but how do you i'm just thinking of things that other people have said to me how do you shut the audience out how do you shut your readers out while you're doing this and that sounds an oh, awful way of phrasing it I, I but don't this idea of like this idea of okay so you're writing something you're trying to follow your heart yeah at the same time you've got a response at some point you're like a but will the reader enjoy this? Do I? What's my responsibility my, to my audience? What's my mm-hmm. responsibility to people who like my work? At some point, you know, there's people who re- read your stuff who say, "I really enjoyed it. Can't wait for the next one." Yeah. How do you manage that in 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 your head? Like doing stuff for you while feeling a responsibility towards people who are going to someday p- potentially read this? Yeah. Uh, great question. I love this question. I love talking about the relationship between the author and the audience. It's one of the things that I'm hugely passionate about, which is why I keep writing books about storytellers. Um, so I, besides NaNoWriMo, my other big background is in fan fiction. Um, I read, I read fan fiction. I wrote fan fiction um, constantly as a teenager. Um, and then like I was busy with school and with my original writing. But like this year, um, I have started writing fan fiction again for the first time in 11 years. I've never stopped reading fan fiction. Um, like I consume it by the handful. Um, and with fan fiction, there's a very interesting and different relationship between the author and the audience because it's much closer and it's a little bit more on equal footing. And so I think that that really, really affected like how I look at the audience for my original work as well, because um, I think my approach is that I just feel like I was just talking to uh, uh, about this to someone else. And it's like this this idea of hospitality. Right. Uh, Like if I am inviting you over to my house for dinner, um, I will probably ask you like, okay, do you have any dietary restrictions? Are there any things that you don't like? Um, and you'll say, yes, I'm allergic to shellfish. And I'll say, great, I didn't really like shellfish. I don't like shellfish at all, actually. So we won't have shellfish. Uh, and then like when you get to my house, I will courteously invite you in and um, like ask you to take off your shoes at the door. I will say, oh, please make yourself comfortable on the couch. Can I get you something to drink? Um, and that's kind of like how I feel about writing as well. Like I don't so much feel like I am handing down my story to readers and and they can accept it or not although there is kind of like an aspect of that just naturally it much more feels like a conversation that I'm having um with the audience like for one thing I thrive on validation I'm like thirsty for praise and validation at all times (laughs) um as most artists are I think uh and, and so, like, I, I love hearing responses to my work, and I, I love that because it makes me feel less like I'm alone in a room. Um, when I was in college, uh, I had a moment uh, over the summer one time, and I was, I was lying in my friend's living room on an uh, air mattress, which had a hole in it, 
And so at the beginning of the night, I would go to sleep. And then usually around two o'clock in the morning, I would wake up because I was flat on the floor. Uh, and so it was at one of these like 2 a.m. lying flat on the floor of her living room, staring at the ceiling in the dark and just like thinking about stuff that I thought like I don't so much want to be a writer. I'd rather be a storyteller because a writer like as as you mentioned, like sitting alone in a room the size of a service elevator, probably it's a garret. Uh, it's probably cold. <laughs> there's a, there is a, a draft. Uh, there's a typewriter. Uh, it's all very drab. It might be raining outside. Uh, and like the, the very essence of that archetype is lonely and isolated and struggling. Like that's the idea of the struggling artist, right? The struggling writer. And when you think of a storyteller, you think of someone standing by a fireplace and telling stories to people and the mental picture of it is just warmth and it's community and it's laughter and togetherness and that's kind of what I would like to aspire towards with my work um, so when I'm thinking about the audience like I'm thinking like oh what what will I love what will uh what am I passionate about uh, and when I think about like, oh, will will they like it too? It's not so much of a rivalry situation. It's much more of a cooperative situation. Like, will they love this? Do I love this? Can we love this thing together? And will loving this at the same time bridge a connection between us? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it really does. And it, and it kind of made me think you know because my background uh, originally was in sort of um was in performance poetry was in live mm. poetry before i oh, came yeah, so before you know. i came to before i came to um f f fiction and, and writing for the page so i was kind of like I, I i was hearing you say that and i was going yeah tim you should you should know this you've done stuff yeah. you know you you're used to performing for an audience and, and and of course as soon as you say that i'm like yeah yeah and and and, and of course when you're writing for an audience initially you you try and you kind of almost try and simulate them in your head a little bit you kind of yeah. like you get the rhythm of stuff and you tell stuff to yourself but you're always your first audience because you are a human too and so right. hopefully we're going to have some shared you know we we have this shared repertoire of emotions and, right. and and so you can you can use yourself as that initial sounding board something yeah, really exactly. moves you then and like, it will probably like from sorry from the from the uh, performing poetry aspect. There's also that difference in the energy of the room, right? Like when you are reading a poem in a room by yourself, like it's kind of a blank slate. Um, it means that you have the ability to hear yourself and witness yourself and kind of be a spectator to yourself, which means that you can practice and rehearse it a little bit more. But when you get on stage, that kind of fades into the background because it's the energy that the audience is giving you that affects your performance more than anything else. Like I have I've performed in in public as well, both my work and other people's work. And you can you get on stage and you can feel the vibe, right? About whether the audience is is open to you, whether they are are holding their hearts out for you, or whether they're shut off and hostile and whether you might have to work a little bit hard uh, work a little bit harder to get them to open up and to let you in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I, and I now you say that it makes me think about how 
you know when when you're kind of when I was you know constructing a set I often thought of the first piece as kind of like my funnel piece my wide funnel that would Mm. be as broad as possible to kind of get people get that buy-in and then later on you can go for slightly more challenging stuff when you've established to people that um it's you've you've established a contract with the audience and some audiences are are there Mm -hmm. with, with you from the beginning and some aren't but I guess that's true of any story that you you look at your opening as a kind of opening bid to say to the reader hey this is you know this first page is your buy-in to I I want to tell you a story and if you like this then we've got a contract and you'll come with me for a while yeah it's like it's like holding your hand out to someone and saying do you trust me like will you will you take my hand will you will you stay with me for this little time and like let me into your heart will you let me do something to your brain uh and that is that's a huge act of trust for the reader which i don't think that many people even realize that they're doing um and maybe like it's a little bit less profound for for most people but it's like very profound for me to think about because i think about this all the time and and just like the idea of like someone trusting you and and letting you into their heart and their mind and giving you the opportunity to potentially change them a little bit and and to affect them in a way that they might carry for the rest of their lives is is huge and i think that that's something to be very conscious of or conscious of and something to be very uh careful and respectful of as well I was wondering, that seems like a really good opportunity to just very quickly sort of go into a conspiracy of truths and a choir of lies, uh, maybe to just give people who are listening a little bit of an idea what they're about, because they kind of pick up that theme very strongly. And mm-hmm. also, you know, what we started off with is talking of like political intrigue and the power of stories. And I, I wondered if you could just... I, you know, I'll leave it to you to sort of touch on it in as spoilery or non-spoilery okay. a way as you want to, but um, just to give people a sort of like little taste of of what kind of um areas that it, that you're dealing with. Yeah, so um, a conspiracy of truths and a choir of lies are kind of a duology that you can read in either order. Um, it will change your the effect of the story, and I think that both effects uh, are are valid. Uh, they also function fairly well as standalones. So you can read them by themselves, or you can read them together, and it will enrich the experience, etc., etc., whatever. Art. Um, so a, a Conspiracy of Truths is about an elderly storyteller named Chant. Uh, he is a wandering mendicant storyteller from a line of ancient storytellers. They are all called Chant. It's a title, not a name, uh, who gets thrown in prison and accused of witchcraft. And to save his own life, he has to tell stories to the rulers of the country to potentially save his own uh, to potentially save his own ass and in the process uh, kind of brings about a whole revolution and <laughs> uh, kind of screws some stuff up for a lot of people. Uh, and then A Choir of Lies, the second book, is about his apprentice, uh, whose name is Ilfing. Uh, and it is a couple years after Ilfing has graduated from his apprenticeship and gone off by himself. And he's kind of struggling with what he has been taught versus what he wants to believe, like his own personal values versus the values that he inherited from uh, his master chant. And it's about him like struggling with the aftermath of what happened in the first book and thinking about responsibility and about 
the awesome power of a storyteller when a storyteller is allowed to get into people's heads and how that can be used for good as well as evil. What was the other question that you were asking me about that? Because that was just the the kind of summary of them. Was there another question you wanted me that, to answer? No, that was, that was, that was, that, that was, um, oh, I, I, okay. I mean, I think, and I was just asking, you know, I was, I, I asked, I mentioned political intrigue as well. Oh, yeah. I think you've kind of touched on that. Yeah. So like, I naturally, like I've, I've written two books about this. It's something that I have, I've spent a great deal of time thinking about. Um, just like, the idea that a story can tear down a whole nation. Um, a Conspiracy of Truths came out uh, in 2017, 2018. And um, I, the very, very short pitch for it is a fantasy novel about fake news. Uh, and so the stories that are told to us have a power to tear down whole nations. Uh, and people have done that for stories. People have gone to war over stories. And uh, A Choir of Lies is about how, okay, yes, a story can tear down a nation, but a, a story can also build it back up. A story can save a life as well as destroy one. Um, and both of those are important and valid and, and things that we as writers, I think, could be more consciously aware of. Do you, so do you think because I mean I, I suppose people see that in we see that in 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 we see that very clearly you know most people accept that in the kind of media and in stories that are passed around in the news do you think that's true of fiction as well in terms of sorry can you reword reword the question it, well just do you think that's true do you you've talked about like stories can tear down whole nations people mm. go to war for stories and you know use the example of kind of fake news and so kind of like with political with kind of like narrative politics and stuff mm. um that's i think we kind of like a lot of people you know would accept that and stories come out and there's kind of war over you know what's yeah. true and what isn't and but do you think that applies to do you think that, that the same can be said of you know fiction because you said we've got to be careful when you say we i suppose what i'm getting at is i do mean um we collectively as humans or are you talking about we the kind of like community of of, of writers and storytellers I, I think both and i think that fiction can absolutely have an impact on on politics um i forget which one it, i think there was some book that was written in the early 1900s about the meat packing industry and everybody read it and was so horrified that it actually did affect like legislative changes uh to make the meat packing industry like better and less gross um through the medium of stories we also like writers are always telling stories about the things that they're thinking about and the the environment that they're living in. Uh, and so a lot of the things that they're worried about, um, it's basically everybody's doing therapy on the page in front of you and kind of like working through their own stuff and answering questions that they're wondering about. Uh, and so you see a lot of books that have um, analogies for uh, political things or um, like personal internal struggles and and things like that. Octavia Butler's books were extremely political. Um, and you you know, people complain on Twitter like, oh, like I miss the days when books weren't political at all. Books have always been political. It's just that you were so small and short that the thing, the point flew right over your head. Mm. Um, but now you are tall and grown up and the point is hitting you in the face. Um, 
So and, and it tends to be more yeah. obvious when when we don't when it's it's very obvious that a book is political when it, it, it's espousing politics we don't agree with yes. then you kind of go huh, what oh what what yes. that's a, that's preposterous when it's kind of largely affirming your worldview you it, that's know not it's politics. quite easy to read a yeah, book and go not, oh a, that's a, not politics that's just book. the truth right <laughs> right yeah 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 um yeah absolutely so so and I think that there have been so many times that we can't even document when stories have changed the world in some small way, like fiction stories, story stories, fairy tales, um, that affected the right person at the right time and gave them the tool that they needed to go on and make some other big change. I think that that has happened all throughout human history. Um, there is a book that I'm very fond of called uh, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human by Jonathan Gottschall. And in it, there's a, a line about how stories are basically a flight simulator for the human brain. Like, why do we tell stories from a, like from an evolutionary perspective? What evolutionary function do stories tell? Why is this something that is so integral to the human experience? And it's because like the human brain is designed for pattern recognition before all else. It's designed for pattern recognition and stories are just patterns um, in essence when you boil them right down. And so you look at different patterns so that when another pattern happens to you, you can match it up. You can say like, oh, I recognize this because a similar kind of thing happened in this fairy tale that I know or this book that I read. And the character in that book, here's the flight simulator part, um, the character in, in that book got through it by doing this, this, this. Maybe I can do something similar. Um, I think it was J.K. Chesterton, possibly, who uh, had the quote about how... Um, what is it uh about defeating dragons like oh fairy tales tell us that oh fairy tales don't tell us that dragons exist they tell us that dragons can be defeated and mm. so dragons can be not just literal like fire-breathing lizards dragons can also be like huge huge monstrous abstract things that seem too vast and too powerful for any individual person to tackle um, and it's like through stories that we see like how to take them apart. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's yeah, that's cool. That's really <laughs> cool. Uh, sorry, just sort of quietly having my mind blown. Uh, I realize you can't see all the time that I'm just listening to you and nodding, but like through most of what you're saying, I'm nodding, and then I just realize, oh, um, that's not visible. So um, uh, yeah, no. Um, so I, I, I wonder if. Um, if 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 we could talk a bit about um finding fairies uh yeah. just because i was really excited for no other reason than i'm just really excited to talk about it because it's kind of one of my favorite types of of book which is like a sort of you know in part a kind of bestiary mm -hmm. and um i i just i just love that that's one of my favorite genres. So I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about how you came to, to write it and what it's about. Yeah. Uh, so Finding Fairies is 
I kind of describe it as an urban fantasy field guide to the supernatural creatures of the modern world with a particular emphasis on the effects of climate change and pollution and urban adaptation and sort of the other human factors. Um, so I was I was actually hired to write this book. The publisher was uh, decided like they they thought this idea was fantastically cool and they they wanted to find a, a writer to to write this uh and so they approached me to do it based on the recommendation of my my editor at the time um and i was immediately really excited about this project uh, i was like yes i am the right person to to write about fairies i have a, a whole background in folklore and mythology i have a degree in folklore and mythology uh and once i i started digging into it like i i really got um, I really enjoyed being able to dig my, my fingers into it um, because it was it was a way of looking at so much of the modern world through um, allegory. As I, as I mentioned before, I, uh, that a lot of stories lo look at political situations uh, through the lens of, of allegory in, in science fiction and fantasy. Um, and because like for a in a great deal of our literature, fairies are kind of a very rural thing. They're part of the natural world. And we as humans in the modern world have destroyed so much of the natural environment or changed it irrevocably to be more convenient for us. Uh, with cities, yes, but also with this, uh, the spread of suburbs, with highways uh, and all of these things. And so how have... Uh, how would supernatural creatures react and adapt to such things? Uh, because even like in our in our real world, um, mundane creatures have adapted to live more closely with humans, not domesticated, but more they're not they're not as wild as they once were. Like raccoons will come right up to a person and like eat sausages out of their hand or dig in the, the garbage can. Um, and that's very annoying for everybody. Um, but so so I had I had a great time thinking about like how have the things that humans have done to the natural environment, but also the things that humans have done to each other affected the or rather how would how would those things be reflected in the supernatural world i i want to now you've said you kind of like you 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 studied folklore I'd be really mm. interested to know what you feel like what 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 is the fo I, I i the word the question i want to ask is is what what are fairies for and, and that's going to sound like an odd question but i mean like what is their sort of folk setting aside their sort of yeah. reality or, or non-reality and not you know i don't I, what, right let's not but, let's not but, get into to whether or not fairies are real we can set that question yeah, yeah i'm sure, quite sure, i'm like, quite happy for? for that to remain remain in a, a sort of question for other people but um yeah. but but their their folkloric function yeah um you're asking just like these fantastic questions, by the way. I love all of these. Um, like really digging into some stuff that I, I, I love thinking about. Okay, so the folkloric function of fairies. What are fairies for as as stories? What's the, the function of a fairy story? Um, partially, it is that... Okay, whether or not you are superstitious, whether or not you genuinely 
believe in in supernatural creatures. I think that most people have in their life experienced something that was a little bit weird that they might not necessarily have been able to really explain. And it wasn't necessarily like something huge and life changing. It, I don't think most people like most people haven't had an alien sighting or, or things like that. Um, but for example, it could be it could be really simple and small and mundane, like getting deja vu because you were at the store and you looked up and saw the cashier's name tag and you were like, I swear I had a dream about talking to this cashier like two weeks ago and I've never seen this cashier in my life, right? Like like we've all had kind of just strange brain things that happen, kind of blips in the code as it were, uh, if you want to use a matrix metaphor. Huh. Um, and and so so that has been true, I think, for most of human history. Uh, humans have not significantly changed in who they are or what they're like for um, thousands of years. Um, and we still are physiologically the same as we have been for, for millennia. Um, so for one thing, fairy, fairy stories are a way of kind of like explaining the slightly weird, not the really, really weird, just the like slightly weird. Um, it depends on which one we're talking about, but, um, like, you know, uh, okay, so let's talk about the people who have had alien sightings real quick. So when people have alien sightings, they talk about like, oh, I saw these little green men, right? You, you've heard this, yes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I've read, I've consumed so many alien encounter uh, books, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so, but when you compare that to people in the medieval times before aliens were a thing they talk about the same kind of thing they talk about like oh yeah i saw a little green man that was a fairy just like how people today say oh yeah i saw a little green man that was an alien right so like again setting aside the issue of whether or not they're real or whether or it is like a human brain glitch right it's a thing that has happened multiple times and there are ways in which humans want to explain things. It's, it's, it's pattern recognition, right? Like, like something strange happens and we want to have a pattern to fit it into. We, ha we want to have a box to put it into. Um, and so fairy stories kind of give us new and different kinds of boxes. Uh, and then people would go on to like develop like personal beliefs uh or like entire belief systems or at the far end of the spectrum entire religions based on on things like this uh but at the end of the day like like the human brain is weird and who knows why things happen um i think that's kind of what they're for i think i think that it's just a way of kind of like acknowledging that there are things in the world which we don't yet understand and that we might never be able to understand um because like even today in the modern world when we have so 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 much science if fairies existed i feel like we would be able to prove that they had existed but uh by now so like i personally do not believe in fairies uh but if other people do that's totally fine that's a valid belief system go nuts um you're valid uh but 
the people who are like, oh, we need to like prove that fairies exist. Like that's the way of like, that's how you kill a fairy. You don't kill a fairy by saying fairies don't exist. You kill a fairy by trying to measure the fairy because it takes the numinous and it tries to quantify it. And the numinous is something that is incredibly important to so many people. That was a very long answer, and I don't think that I actually came to any conclusions there. <laughs> but, but but because it, because of because of the exactly what you're talking about because of the numinous the the fairy the fairies are always going to every direction you swing the torch beam they're always going to sort of just flip slightly out of sight and always be there at the corners of your vision rather than letting you look at them directly I wonder if you could just reflect on because occasionally I've been taken aside by my literary fiction writing chums (laughs) and say yeah and and I say you know it's the kind of stage interventions yeah and they go look look Tim you know come look you you know you, you I think you know we all want you to have a, a you know have a writing career, but you, why couldn't you couldn't you just write something set in the real world? You know, couldn't you just yeah. write something, you know, a bit more, you know, something mon- something a bit more mundane? You know, something- God, literary fiction writers. I have, yeah. I th- I think I might know exactly this person that you're talking to because I've met this person like at least seventeen different times in seventeen different forms. Um, I I don't know why why literary fiction writers are are so worried about fantasy but they get really really like concerned about it and yeah i i don't know sorry i kind of interrupted what was the well question i was just gonna i was just gonna about? ask i'm not i'm not sort of i'm sort of encouraging you to sort of i'm not asking you to mount a defense of yeah. um genre fiction because you you don't have to i know what you know i know why i Love it. But I suppose right. people, you know, might hear you go, well, you know, you love writing about political intrigue. Um, you know, you, you love writing about sort of like the history or the lore of a place. Um, and you like stories and being guided by characters. Why do you need fantastical elements to do that? Mm-hmm. Those things exist in, in, the, in, in the real world. And I wonder if you could reflect on what you think has drawn you to be writing specifically within the realms of the fantastical yeah um i think part of it is that i like making my own rules uh because if i wrote something that was set in the real world um there's a lot of research that goes into that there's a lot of um like just facts to take into consideration uh i like writing about uh, medieval fantasy in particular because like that's kind of the aesthetic that I enjoy uh, and that's kind of the the time period of history that I enjoy uh, my interest starts to peter out around the industrial revolution um, that's where I start like getting bored and wandering away um, but with with so part of it is just that I, I enjoy the aesthetics right like simple easy I like it um, part of it is that I like making up my own rules rather than being constrained of to the rules of the real world. So even if I was writing historical fiction set in the real world, for example, something like Dorothy Dunnett's uh, Lyman Chronicles, then there would be like tons and tons and tons of research to do to taking into consideration like the real things that happened and again, like facts and stuff. And I am busy and I have things to do and <laughs> I want to like 
I just want to buckle down and, and tell the story. I don't want to like waste time having to to check whether I was right about something because it's not. I. I'm trying to think of how to say this. So the thesis statement of a conspiracy of truths and a choir of lies is that it doesn't matter whether the story was true as long as it was a good story, um, as long as it was truer, truer than truth, right? Because like facts don't, facts don't really matter. Facts aren't really what stays with a person. What stays with a person is that core of, of truth with a capital T. And that's what we should be striving towards as, as writers, is that capital T truth rather than the lowercase t truth. Uh, and so fantasy means that I have space to do that without constraints. Um, also, wizards are cool. They definitely are really <laughs> cool, yeah. Yeah, no, like, I, I think I think that's sort of the bit that, um, especially maybe because, you know, there's that slight, um, uh, I don't know if it's kind of like, literary envy or something but if yeah. I'm sort of like feel like I'm have, making the case to somebody who sort of is is interested in high art mm. it, 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 I, I sometimes feel a bit ashamed of going I, I, I really enjoy it and I think it's really cool and it makes me happy and I love yeah. giving my imagination this kind of chew toy to play with like it's, yeah, it yeah that's happy. valid that's valid that's incredibly incredibly valid art doesn't have to hurt Art can be hmm. joyful. Art can be fun. And that doesn't take away from its literary merit. Uh, and also, like, if someone is having fun, it means that sometimes it is way easier to transmit your point to them. And it's easier to get them to listen because people like to be entertained. Uh, and uh, and also, like, literary fiction writers like to go like, oh, but it's just like it's books for kids for one thing. Children's books have a high degree of technical skill and a lot goes into them. Uh, so let's not, you know, turn our noses up at, at, up at that. Um, and also, what was the other point that I was going to be making? Um, okay, so the idea that fantasy is for kids is a fairly modern invention and it's Disney's fault. It's because Disney took a bunch of fairy stories and watered them down and erased all of the gritty, gory, capital T truth part of them and marketed them for children because that was easy money. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm mad at Disney uh, for a number of reasons lately, but that's it. Um, so the idea, fairy stories have been something that is accessible and important for adults for almost all of human history up until about 1950. And it's only in the modern day that we start going like, oh, but those are, that's for kids. Like, why would you waste time on something for, for kids instead of talking about something that's real and Im important? Um, and the other point is that, like, there are dozens and hundreds of fantasy and science fiction books which are deeply literary and deeply skilled on a technical level and are doing some incredibly amazing and important things and it's a damn shame that so many people are willing to like turn their noses up at them just because the, they don't like the color of the paint as it were rather than looking at like the internal structure and and the the 
important um, analogies, or not analogies, but the important um, metaphors and messages that the, the book is is presenting. Uh, so that's kind of how I feel about that. Yeah, and I, I'm <laughs> sure, in, in fairness, I'm sure that there are loads of litfic writers listening now howling going but i love sf i love fantasy i read it all the time i don't you know yeah, i i i i so so i mean i have personally met and you have personally met literary fiction writers who don't feel that way who do turn up their noses at, at sf enough and who and like as as a cultural thing like science fiction and fantasy is kind of looked down upon by the mainstream like or at least it was I think it, the tides are changing a little bit because um, like Lord of the Rings was so huge and we've had superhero movies that have been mainstream popular for like a decade now um, and uh, of course Game of Thrones like everybody and their mom was watching Game of Thrones and so I think that like the mainstream is starting to come around again but for, for many many years like you could not be taken seriously if people knew that you were writing science fiction and fantasy in literary circles that's yeah that, that that's very true and it, it yeah. wasn't that, that, that those genres weren't doing very well within their own spheres it was just that there were kind of there were there were great barriers kind of like mm-hmm. the cleaving the genres sort of like the, the the this great kind of continental drift that meant you chose you chose a kind of island chain to to, to live on and then you never crossed for the rest of your life you had right. the one or the other and and I think now people are a lot more promiscuous in kind of moving between genres and experimenting with different things and and reading between them and 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 you're and, and I look you I think you are definitely right that the uh, prejudices are still there and occasionally I get very I get annoyed because like a literary fiction writer will will dabble in science fiction oh, and, yeah. and just trot out a trope that is sort of 80 years old as if they were the person who came up with it and, yeah. and all these lit- <laughs> yes. litfic reviewers are going this is amazing it's like no we've been saying doing is, that for decades like the go, conversation well, you know, is like so far past that gosh yes 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 yeah, you know they're going like what what is a what is a monster? Or you know, they're what going. What is oh, a robot? This, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this this robot makes us think a bit about what it means to be human? And you're like, oh, no, come on! <laughs> How dare you? It's fine. I wouldn't mind. But you've been sneering at us for ages, and then and then when you do it, you're like, wow, this is yeah. really deep. Yeah, I yeah, think that we're no. thinking about the exact same book, aren't we? Came yeah, out like I what was so it last year? That one guy with the robot book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, fuck him. Um, Sorry. And, no, no, I know. Yeah, gosh, phew. That felt well. That felt cathartic. Thank you. And yeah. I guess like the final thing I I I, I want to just ask is because you've been so. I mean, you've been so helpful to me personally, kind of like um coaching me through my own writing ways. Mm. But I just wondered if you have um for writers who maybe, however their nano remo has gone, um maybe a kind of they have a. Okay, okay, let's be specific because okay. uh, let's be specific. I'm going to imagine a specific writer, but they're kind of like a conglomeration of a lot of the letters I get. Okay. So they're kind of, they're, 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 there's a truth to them. There's, they're truer than true. Mm. Um, right. Um, the, 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 uh, there's this writer who's got, got a thing, right? They, they, they've got some, they've written some scenes. They've got a bunch of ideas. They've done some of their world building. They've got some scenes. They've had a couple of runs at it. And maybe they've got to like... 15,000 words with some a, bun- a whole bunch of notes as well. Yeah. And then they kind of like lost their momentum and they put it down and they haven't quite come back to it in a couple of months and they, they feel like well, maybe it's gone off the boil. 
um, for that person who want who desperately wants to write something, but has sort of maybe lost their momentum, lost a bit of steam, lost a bit of heart. Um, how can somebody get back into a writing habit and start having a run at the thing that they want to write? Yeah, um, really great questions. I think, okay, so I think that there's like two parts to this. One of them is like the emotional, like how do you get back into a book if you've like been away from it for a little while? Um, and the other one is like, how do you then sustain that on a like day-to-day kind of level? So like getting back into it emotionally, I think like for one thing, like, reread everything that you've written that's what I do every time because I I usually have at least like three projects going at one time um and so when I get frustrated with one I'll set it down and I'll go work on something else so I'm always productive but I'm not necessarily producing on the same thing continuously um so taking a break is a great idea if you start getting burned out uh if you're not on deadline, like you don't owe that to anybody. Like go rest, don't work on it if you're angry at it. Um, well, okay, sometimes you do have to work on it when you're angry at it because sometimes you just have to push through. Uh, sometimes you're writing a scene that's very annoying. Uh, so, but when you do come back to it, reread everything that you have. See if you can capture or remember like what that first spark was that made you really intrigued to write this what was the question that you were trying to to answer what was the the compelling thing again this goes back to what i was telling you about like like what what's the thing that's dragging you forwards um what's the the big sort of human mystery that you're trying to solve or whatever it is um or is it that you just want to like write some cool scenes about like people hitting each other with swords which is also a valid thing to write about and a valid reason to do it is i just think this is cool hell yeah hell yeah um so so once you kind of recapture that spark or or recapture like what the the thing was that you were so interested in um then you can kind of go from there. Sometimes it's hard to recapture it. Sometimes you step away for, for a little while and it kind of just peters out. Um, you can reignite it. It might be different than it was before. You might have to find something new. Like, oh, I wrote 15,000 words about this character, but I'm not... I. I find that I'm not really interested in them anymore. This used to happen to me all the time. Uh, I used to, when I was like a teenager or so, uh, I used to write the most boring protagonists and I would always end up having these like side characters who were absolutely incredible. And I was like, they're cool. They're my favorite character in the book. Why am I not writing about them? Guess what? You can just write about the interesting person instead (laughs) of the the boring protagonist. so so being compelled to spend time with a character who is fun, uh, who you want to see do interesting things uh, is great. Um, what, getting and then sustaining momentum, uh, the thing that I do is to look at the long term. Um, in a writing year, I at, uh, for New Year's, for my New Year's resolution, I will sit down and I say, okay, I am going to end this year with a 1,000 word per day average. That does not mean that I am writing 1,000 words every day. Um, because... But that, that does mean you're writing 365,000 words a year, though. Rough, roughly, roughly. Although I don't count days that 
are um, sick days because I am self-employed. And just because I am self-employed doesn't mean that I am allowed to treat my employee in an exploitative way. Um, I still deserve fair labor laws um, as my own employee and as my own boss. So I, I don't write, I don't count days towards my, my end of the year average, uh, if I am sick, if I am traveling. And usually I have one day a week where that I don't count the day as the total. Um, so like I might end the year with like 280 days rather than 365 days, um, that, from which I am averaging out a thousand. That means that on those days when I am sick, but I do write a little bit anyway, all the words that I produce are bonus words. So I am rewarding myself for like, because it's, it's taken on the average, um, like words above zero bonus words that, that counts towards my end of the year total. It is, it's a good thing. Um, rather than just being like a dull thing. If you just set out to write a thousand words per day, the first day that you fail to do that, you have failed. And that is disheartening. Um, if you want to be a writer, if you want a writing career, um, start trying to adjust your perspective towards the long term rather than towards this next week or tomorrow. Uh, because a writing career, uh, you might sell a book in June and the book doesn't come out for another year and a half. Uh, so like you have to look at the big picture. I think that's the entirety of my advice. Did you have any other questions about that? Yeah, no, I just, I just, I just wanted to drill down into like a really specific thing is like yeah. when you're kind of like moving forward, you said you might get kind of like stuck or you might kind of like rewriting a scene that you hate or something. And I'm mm -hmm. sure, you know, even you, although it sounds like you've got a pretty healthy relationship with your writing, I'm sure you have days that are more of a slog than others. Oh yeah. And, um, I just wonder when you find yourself getting stuck and bogged down, do you go, I'm going to see, you know, is it kind of like either either this scene, you know, do you, is either this scene goes or I do, are you kind of like, I'm going to drag this scene over the finishing line with me? Or do you just skip to another bit in the book and write kind of like out of turn and go, I'll come back to this later and I'll write something yeah. I, I'm enjoying more? Or how do you approach that? Um, I have done all of those things. Uh, depends on the situation, depends on what the scene is, uh, depends on my mood. Uh, there's all kinds of factors. All of those are, are valid things to do. Uh, sometimes I know that a fun scene will be coming up next. And so I will say like, okay, I am going to drag myself through this scene kicking and screaming just so I can write the fun scene that's coming immediately after this one. Sometimes I know that there are fun scenes later in the book that I want to write and so I will just like skip to those scenes and write those because I want to <laughs> and I can. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, sometimes like I, it's sometimes you're just working and it's just not going and you step away and go for a walk or eat something. That's usually what, what it is, is that I haven't eaten. Um, and like, it's not working because I'm hungry. And so like, once I go and like, take a half an hour to an hour uh, to like, make lunch, eat lunch, um, like watch a couple videos on YouTube and then come back to it. Uh, that's enough of a break. And then I have like calories. And so I, it makes my brain work better. Um, and it would be, it's actually like surprising how much that can affect your cognition and your ability to think. Um, but yeah, just like giving yourself breaks when you need to and like letting it, 
like making it be okay to be flexible with it. And also I think like, especially for beginning writers, experiment with your process. Because uh, Tim, I think at the beginning of the, the call, you were saying like that you don't really know whether your own process works for you. And so you're kind of like experimenting with things. And I think that's yeah. great because like we're all growing and changing all of the time. I used to be completely a pantser. I used to just like make the stories up as I go. These days, I'm much more of a planner. I, I really, once I figured out how to write an outline that worked for me, I started really loving outlines. Um, so your process can change over the course of your life. There's no reason to be married to one thing. And uh, by experimenting and trying new things, you can you might discover something that works even better for you um, than the old thing that you had. So, yeah, I think just being like open and, and flexible and not tying yourself down is good. That's that's awesome. And, you know, it's, it's funny how kind of like, a, you know, creative writing you know there's a creative part to it and yet sometimes we can get so kind of like ossified in our mm. and superstitious about our process yeah when creativity is part of that and that allows us to you know like innovate and try new things right and different books might sort of necessitate different approaches yeah absolutely like every every project it's like children um like every child needs parenting in a slightly different way and so you kind of have to like I'm not a parent I don't know any children um but like (laughs) but theoretically like because each child has a different personality you kind of have to like adjust your parenting style based on what's going to work for them and what's going to what they're going to respond to um whereas and like with books it's the the same thing some books like my process changes slightly for every book because every book just needs something a little bit different if thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting to me i've really really enjoyed listening to your thoughts on thank you this has been really amazing like again you asked some like really really good questions i love this oh thank you i'm so glad well i've really really enjoyed your answers um if people want to um find your um work online where's the best place for them to go um so my website is alexandraroland.net i am also on twitter as on at underscore Alex Rowland. Uh, I'm on Patreon as patreon.com slash underscore Alex Rowland. Uh, you can buy my books um, pretty much anywhere is fine. Um, I have a bookshop.org affiliate link, um, which I believe is on my website. Uh, so you can go there to buy books and I get a small uh, charge or bonus for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you go on my website also, I have a uh, fan fiction tags and trigger warnings for all of my books uh, or content warnings if if anyone needs those um, and you can see what upcoming projects I have as well. Cool well I will put links to all of those in the show notes for today's episodes Wonderful. and um, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you Tim have a good one. And everybody listening uh, I hope you enjoyed the show and have a wonderful week of writing.